You're listening to Episode 8 of Justice, Mercy, Faith, a podcast from The Christian Citizen. In this episode, enjoy Christian Citizen contributors Richard C. Harwood on a new patriotism amid growing challenges and heightened emotions. The Reverend Dr. Deborah Jackson asks, Who Killed Jesus? And Elisa Vasquez on our filters within the church. Richard C. Harwood is president and founder of the Harwood Institute for Public Innovation, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization located in Bethesda, Maryland. Here he is reading his latest essay, A New Patriotism Amid Growing Challenges and Heightened Emotions. I've been thinking about patriotism a lot lately. It's an idea many people struggle with, especially nowadays, and rightly so. But here's my take. We need much more patriotism among us to help write our politics in the country and believe in ourselves. Patriotism, no doubt, can be fleeting. Like after a terrorist attack, when we put flag decals on our cars, sing patriotic hymns at ball games, and donate to our favorite causes. Patriotism also is cynically manipulated to demonize opponents. It becomes a weapon. But the actual definition of patriotism is something quite profound and beautiful, love of country. Within this definition resides the notion of devotion, that our abiding love for our communities and country make us willing to stick with them even or especially when we no longer like what they've become or the directions in which they seem to be going. Patriotism, this kind of devotion, is not something you do alone. For the word patriot has a derivative, compatriot, which means fellow country people. We are destined to be in relationship with one another, for we live together in communities, not alone. As I travel the U.S., I keep hearing people talk about challenges that only seem to be getting worse, often further dividing us, and to which I believe we are called to take action. We are summoned to exercise our sense of patriotism. We face the original sin of slavery in our country. The need to address our past and decide how we will move into the future is urgent. This and other stains on our civic fabric require our individual attention. We must act. Political leaders are intentionally and dangerously using hot rhetoric to question one another's allegiance to the nation rather than to openly and forthrightly debate the issues. This erodes basic norms and trust. People wonder if systemic problems like poor public schools will ever get addressed, or if the kids who attend these schools are doomed for life. So many groups within society have grievances about their economic plight, whether they can afford to send their kid to a community college, and how closing industrial plants will undermine the future of their communities, among other issues. These and other concerns directly hit home for people. There's anger and hurt and sorrow and despair among many Americans. We must recognize this reality, and we must ask ourselves this question. Amid these growing challenges and heightened emotions, will we choose to turn away from others or turn toward them? Will we see and hear each other and truly understand one another? Or will we simply raise our voices to drown out those who are different from us 
and who hold opposing views. Turning toward one another today takes courage to stand and sit with others, to hear and understand their lived experiences, to feel their pain, to know their dashed hopes, to create something better. It takes humility to listen with an open heart, compassion, and empathy, with the self-awareness that someone else's experiences may be very different from our own, and that we need each other to find shared solutions. You can be angry, filled with sorrow, even bereft, and still hold love for our people, our communities, and our country. And due to your love, press ahead to fight to right wrongs, improve people's lives, and create genuine hope. Indeed, it is when we do not like what is happening around us that we are most in need to exercise our greatest patriotism. We need patriots, and we need compatriots who are willing to see the challenges before us, come together with others, and take action. The Reverend Dr. Deborah Jackson is Director of Lifelong Learning at Yale Divinity School. Her book, Spiritual Practices for Effective Leadership, Seven R's of Sanctuary for Pastors is available at judsonpress.com. In her latest piece for The Christian Citizen, she asks, Who killed Jesus? As we prepare for the passion of our Christ, the conversation begins anew about who was responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. I remember the thinly veiled aspersions being cast as I grew up in the church. Romans carried out the deed, but they were put up to it by the Jews. No one ever came out and said that the Jews were to blame for Jesus' death, but rocket science was not needed to fill in the blanks. The shadow was ever present in the inference, and the concerns born of the passion narrative seemed to justify Jewish mistrust in the broader context. That shadow never went away but it is looming large once again because anti-Semitism is on the rise at an alarming level. Anti-Semitic acts in France increased by 74% in 2018. In Germany last year, 1,641 anti-Semitic acts were reported, according to the police, marking their highest level in the past decade. And in our own country, anti-Semitic hate crimes rose 57% in 2017 from 2016, the largest single-year jump on record, according to the Anti-Defamation League. As Christians, I believe that we have a responsibility to speak out against anti-Semitism, and we can help by acknowledging the truths of the gospel narrative. First, we must acknowledge the biblical prophecies that affirm Jesus' fated existence. Quite simply, Jesus was born to die, and the prophet said so years before Jesus' coming. Isaiah 53 speaks of the servant who was wounded for our sins, but willingly suffered for us in silence like a lamb being led to the slaughter. 
as followers of Jesus, we see these passages as foreshadowing, but we were not left to guess because Jesus himself confirmed that he would die. Specifically, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 18, Jesus tells the disciples that they would go to Jerusalem where he would be handed over to the chief priests and scribes who would condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked, beaten, and crucified. It cannot get much clearer than that. However, if we missed that intent, Paul confirms the truth of the prophecy, saying in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, that Jesus did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This was God's plan from the beginning, to give humanity the opportunity for redemption and salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God's Son. God's definitive plan had nothing to do with anti-Semitism, and we must stop preaching and teaching in ways that suggest otherwise. Secondly, we must acknowledge the socio-political realities that led to Jesus' death. We know the story. Jesus' three-year ministry found him regularly at odds with the religious establishment. So much about him raised ire and provoked outrage. For example, can you imagine Jesus coming into the temple, calling for the scroll of Isaiah, reading what we know as Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and declaring that the scripture had been fulfilled in their hearing? Can't you just hear the priests saying, who does he think he is? Or how about the time when Jesus told the paralyzed man whose friends lowered him from the ceiling that his sins were forgiven? The scribes were up in arms insisting that this was blasphemy. There was genuine fear among the religious establishment that Jesus was too popular with the people and had to be stopped. It was a social-political struggle not unlike what we see today. Power does not concede power. The religious leaders of Jesus' time were not about to concede power to this upstart, itinerant preacher. So, what was done? Factions were created, animosity was stirred, and ultimately, Jesus was executed. Perhaps it's our nature as human beings. We want a scapegoat. We want someone upon whom we can affix blame. Things are changing. It must be their fault. And to make our points, we trot out the old stereotypical tropes, not unlike the comments made recently by a Minnesota congresswoman. But it is a dangerous endeavor because it opens the door to discrimination and hatred. Are we not part of the problem when we intimate Jewish culpability for Jesus' death rather than explaining God's greater purpose? It is like allowing an ellipsis to dangle and conclusions to be drawn. 
I maintain that who killed Jesus is not the pertinent question. It is pertinent to understand the context, yes, but moreover, to know that through Jesus' death and resurrection, we are redeemed. Elisa Vasquez is the founder of You Belong LLC, a platform that connects individuals to local church communities. Here she is reading her debut piece for The Christian Citizen, Filters. What doctrine does the preacher adhere to? How long has he or she been in ministry? Is the spirit moving? Does the church function in the fivefold ministries? How diverse are they? What kind of worship do they have? Do they serve communion? If so, which Sunday is that? These are all filters. Unfortunately, searching for a church community is more difficult than we perceive it to be. It comes with a myriad of questions and concerns. These can at times hinder God's intention to find your purpose within God's idea of community, the local church. A Pew Research study shows that Americans look first for a place where they like the preaching and the tone set by the congregation's leaders. In fact, Pew reports that 83% of Americans who have looked for a new place of worship say the quality of preaching played an important role in their choice of congregation. The desire for a particular quality of preaching is not wrong. However, it is the heart behind the critique that matters most. If not navigated well, this can be another filter that serves as a hindrance to God's intention for you to be planted in a community. I recently had a conversation with a friend who has been looking for a church in Philadelphia. He's been church hopping for years, and every time he enters into a new service and hears a new sermon, there are more questions than answers and more frustration than encouragement. There is nothing wrong with questioning. In fact, God invites all questions, and it's through our questions that we grow closer in relationship with him. As God answers our questions, God draws nearest to us. However, there is a balance between questioning and surrendering. Like everything else, it comes down to a heart check. Genuine analysis versus criticism. The questioning filter in its extreme can become quite pharisaical, resembling one that questions every doctrine critically, including the culture and the style of worship. Being highly critical of the ministries the church provides, the demographic or lack thereof, can potentially blindside us to where God is leading. Whereas surrendering is being open to God moving and speaking. It is being more submitted, more trusting, more willing to serve in the community God leads us to. It's saying, Lord, if this is my community, and if this is where you've called me to be planted, I will stay despite my disagreements, despite my own opinion of how church should be orchestrated, and despite my preferences. I trust that you are leading the head pastor and ultimately, Lord, you are building your church. Please note that surrendering does not mean naivete. One does not need to be naive to surrender. In fact, the word of God instructs us to test the spirits. 1 John 4, 1, and to not be fooled by wolves in sheep's clothing, Matthew 7, 15. God is a God of balance, both just and merciful, loving and jealous, to be revered and a friend. 
Therefore, we are called to be a people of balance, to question while simultaneously surrendering to God's leading. God's intention for the hope of the world is the local church, and you are an essential part of it. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Thank you to this week's contributors, Richard C. Harwood, the Reverend Dr. Deborah Jackson, and Elisa Vasquez. Our theme music is Believable 2 by Peter Sandberg. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. We'll be back with a new episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith on April 16th. To learn more about The Christian Citizen, visit the website christiancitizen.us. Until next time, I'm Joshua Kagey. Thanks for listening.